Uh, just before we jump into our teaching time, watch the center screen. This is the epicenter of the outbreak. In a city of a million, almost 50 new cases are reported every day. Liberia's tiny band of healthcare workers are throwing everything they have at Ebola. In video, he says he recorded on his cell phone. You heard four shots. Everybody back up. Right? Move out of the way. Move, move. thankful for the video team that put that together and uh, when we were preparing for the series I had a moment when probably like you do I was watching the news and sometimes you wish you hadn't right yeah. I'm seeing a terrible horrific outbreak in Ebola uh, in in Western Africa I'm seeing the conflict in the Ukraine I'm seeing ISIS seem to be unopposed and advancing and just some terrible atrocities that are connected to that you know, more recently, we're seeing the conflict in Ferguson, Missouri, and the outpouring of racial unrest there. Uh, and sometimes you're left feeling like, well, where's the justice in this? Where's the peace? Because if we know anything about Christmas, we know something about what it's about, right? Luke chapter 2, verse 14 says this. Those angels declare this at that first Christmas and the great expanse of this little postage-sized nation in the Middle East, they declared to the shepherds that day, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those whom his favor rests. That might be the most famous verse in all the Christmas story. And in that most famous verse is that most famous word, peace. I mean, you ask anyone what Christmas is about, they'll say it's peace on earth, right? It's, a, it's about peace on earth. And through the centuries, world leaders and lecturers and authors and poets have written about peace because they see a world like we see and they think there's got to be more than that. In fact, it was 45 years ago this year that John Lennon and his wife Yoko held themselves up in the Queen Elizabeth uh, Hotel on Rennie Levesque protesting for world peace and they wrote a song in their bedroom there all we are saying is yeah yeah give peace a chance and there's something inside of all of us that says that's what we want because you and i yearn for what we were created for before sin entered this world where the lion and lamb could lie together with no violence where there was perfect peace. And we still long for that today. As Christians in this world, though, how do we respond to a world like that? How do we live when you see such chaos and you see such violence and injustices in life and then you see disease and famine and natural disasters? It's painful to watch. And there's a part of me that says, now, if the angels were saying there's peace on earth and 2,000 years ago we got news bites like this, what happened, right? 
I think, I think it's important when we talk about peace on earth, let's talk about what the angels were not saying before we talk about what they're saying. They were not describing a peace that was political or international peace. They were not describing a world that would be without violence or destruction or, or a, a, a less dangerous place. Now, there are people that would argue, smart people that would argue that Christianity has made the world a more hospitable place. Equally, there would be smart people that would argue that Christianity and other world religions have made it a dangerous place, right? I've heard both arguments from very intelligent people. And I think there's a part of you and I that could look at this, and if we were to be honest, we could say to Jesus, Jesus, your followers have been on this earth for 2,000 years. You walk this earth, and look at the news bites. It didn't work. There'd be part of us that could say, you know, that we could push back and say it didn't work. But the fact is, Jesus wasn't born to wipe out war and, and violence and the political unrest. How can I say that? Well, let's look at the very words of Jesus. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus says this. His followers asked him, what will be the sign when things are about to take place? In other words, when we'll know we're in the end days. When, the, when we're in the end days. And Jesus responds this way. When you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. For these things must come to pass first. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Jesus is saying, you should never expect wars to cease. Why, why are you expecting that? There will be a day someday, and I'll get to that in a moment. But in this present life, as we know it, this is going to increase. Merry Christmas. <laughs> increase until he comes, until he returns. It's going to be on the increase, in fact. Now, Jesus is not saying that, that we shouldn't be about peace because he also says, blessed are the... Yeah, I mean, when we've experienced peace... We should bring peace. We should advocate for peace. We should finance peace. We should be a part of that. Listen, when Ebola erupted, what did we do as a church? Well, we gave. We immediately gave to that crisis. Why? Because we're peace bringers. We bring life and hope where we go. We don't bring destruction. A true Christ follower is never to return evil for evil, do they? We don't learn that last week. We return good for evil. That's why even when we, injustice has happened to us, we don't respond with the same ferocity that it may have happened to us. Why? Because we go at a higher level. We, we model our lives after our Lord and Savior, Jesus. So Christians aren't supposed to be uh, uh, this peace between individuals and nations and everything. We're supposed to seek it, but we shouldn't be surprised when we don't see it. Because, listen, that's only partial right now. We pray for peace. We see peace partially. But someday, there will be peace in this world. Someday when Jesus returns, everyone will give an account for their actions. And he will, there will be perfect peace in this world. But until then, we live in a world of unrest. And it's tough and it's difficult. Now, some people will say, well, the peace isn't political or international, but it's internal. So God gives us a peace to be able to face the challenges in this life and gives us an equilibrium in this life. That's what that peace is that the angels were talking about here. They're talking about this internal peace. Now again, let's look at the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 12, verse 51. Jesus says this, Do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? No. What? <laughs> no. 
Now, no, I have come to bring division. From now on, you will be divided. Father will be divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against daughter, uh, daughter against mother. I've come to bring fire on the earth. What, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying this. We experience an internal peace, peace like a river. How many have ever experienced a moment when life is rough, but you sense God's peace in the middle of it? How many have ever experienced that? Now, keep your hand up. Keep your hand up if it never went away. Why? Because in this life, that peace is limited and partial. Because we live in a disturbing world. In fact, Jesus is saying, when you invite me to be the Lord of your life, it's going to mess things up. Because some people aren't going to like what you have to say. Some people aren't going to like how you live. You're countercultural now. You're different than the culture that you live in. And some people don't like that. So there's a disturbance. Now, God gives us peace in this world. Certainly, there's an internal peace. But how many know it gets robbed all the time? Because we live in a disturbing world. See those things out there? When I, when I wanted that little montage of images put together, it was because I was watching the news one day and I'm looking at everything. I turned it off. I closed my computer and my head went down. And I just felt overwhelmed by the amount of chaos. You know, because we see stats, you know, thousands of people die. Every one of them had a name. Every one of them mattered to someone. We, they, I hate how they become faceless numbers out there and they mean nothing and they're just statistics. When they mean everything, They mean everything to God. God created them. They mean something special to a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister. Somebody loves them. And their life is snuffed out in an instant. So they're not faceless. They're not nameless. They matter a lot. But against the backdrop of that, this peace that that is being offered to all of us, Jesus says, I come into your life and there's going to be disturbances in this life because until I return, there will be conflict in this world. Until I return, there will be partial peace internally for you. Because you're going to have moments where you lose it and you have to go back and get it. But here's the thing. Someday, we'll have both of those peace perfectly. Someday, the world will be at perfect peace. And someday, you'll know a peace inside that will never be robbed or taken away again. Peace that passes all understanding. No more striving. No more suffering. No more death. No more illness. I mean... That's the way God made it to be. And sin distorted it and destroyed it all. So what's the peace that's actually being talked about by the angels? If it's not international and political peace, if it's not this internal peace, what is it that's being talked about here? Well, again, let's turn to the books of, uh, book of Luke. In it, there's a man named Zechariah. He's the father of John the Baptist. And before John is even even born, he prophesies over his son that's in his wife's womb. And he says this, and you, my child, meaning John the Baptist, you'll be called the prophet of the most high for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins to guide our our feet into the path of peace. He's talking about peace through the forgiveness of sins. Now, here's the problem, though. When I started this message, I read a familiar verse, Luke chapter 2, verse 14. And some of you were scratching your head going, I don't remember it sounding that way. Because I read it from the New International Version. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, 
peace to those on whom his favor rests. We're used to, often, the more classical King James Version, which says this, Glory to God in the highest, on on earth, peace, goodwill toward men, right? Now, most translators would say, when they originally did the King James Version, they made a mistake there. And I'll quote the King James later, because there's another portion of Scripture I think it's better in. But in this particular verse, they missed the inference, they changed the tense of the verb, and it changed the meaning of this passage of Scripture. A better rendering of this verse in Luke chapter 2 from the Greek, which the New Testament was written in, would be this. Peace towards men to whom God has good will on, whom his favor rests. This is important. What it means is there was a moment when there was ill will between you and God. And for some people who have accepted Jesus, there becomes goodwill. Now, you're not going to like this. Because a part of us, we don't want to believe that. But the Bible says, John the Baptist says, Luke says, it's what Zechariah is getting at, that we're talking about is this peace is between us and God. The peace that the angels announced was peace between us and God. It's, it's, it's what the old Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, uh, that beautiful verse, that line in it that says, Peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners... That's what it is. It's a reconciliation between God and us. Friends, with this peace, though, you have to get it while you're on earth. You can't get it after. The first two peace, you can't fully have until Jesus returns. We'll never have the political international peace. Not totally. We work for peace in that area because we're peacemakers. You'll never have that perfect peace inside all the time. Not in this world, but someday you will. But with the peace that the angels offer us, it has to be received here on earth. It's not someday, it's now. Because the window for it is open while we walk this earth. This peace that God offers through the forgiveness of sins. Peace on earth now. Paul talks about it in Romans 5. He says this, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For while we were God's enemies, everybody say enemies. Yeah, you were one of them. I don't like that, do you? Merry Christmas again. (laughs) While we were God's enemies, uh, um, enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. He goes on to say in Colossians 1, once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So friends, this is the wonder of Christmas. This is what makes Christmas amazing. It's not the nostalgia It's not the the jingling bells and the ho-ho-hos. What makes it amazing is Christmas reminds us every time that we have been reconciled back to God. There was ill will, and now there's goodwill. (laughs) There was hostility, and now there's peace. It's been restored through Jesus Christ. It's incredible. Passage of Scripture, incredible reality that God talks about. So Jesus comes in human form, in a body. Why? To reconcile us, to end the war, to put us at peace. And it said in that passage in Colossians chapter 1, 
He came to make us holy without blemish or accusation. That's amazing. That's what he came to do for us. Isn't that cool? Here's the, th- here's the thing, and think about this. Just track with me for one minute. If you are without accusation, how can you be more, made more without accusation? If you are without blemish, how can you be made more blemishlessness? It's not a word, but you can't. It's complete in Christ. On earth, you can have peace with God. People, religious people think you have to wait to heaven to get peace with God. And Christianity and the story of Christ at Christmas is that you have peace with God here. Without blemish, without accusation. I mean, that's why everybody at Christmas should be giggly. Like, it's incredible. Does it get any better than that? No. It doesn't. There's nothing better than this. Without blemish, without accusation, this is what God has come to do with the, to, for us uh, through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, people don't understand this because we get a notion about religion. And religion is us trying to be good. It's you trying, trying very hard to be good. And a lot of religions teach, if you are really, really good, and if you work really hard at it in this lifetime, you might obtain peace with God. And against the backdrop of that, through, the t- through what Christ has done, it's the inverse of that. That, in fact, we can have peace with God today. And when he transforms us, all of a sudden, those good works flow out of us out of a transformed person. Now, you don't expect that. So many people don't expect peace with God on this earth. And I know I'm talking to three types of people in this room. I'm talking to people who do not have peace with God. I'm talking to people who have peace with God, but they're not living in that peace. And, I, and I'm talking to people who are. They're at peace with God, and they're trying to work that out and live that out in their life. The real secret to receiving peace with God is so simple, but it's so hard. It's simply this. You have to admit that you are at war with God. We don't like this part. The reason most people don't have peace with God is because they don't believe they're at war with God. But the Bible says over and over that we are hostile towards God. Listen to what it says. In fact, it says in Romans 8, 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws, nor can it do so. I mean, that's a radical statement in the New Testament, friends, that you are in your natural posture towards God is not ignorance because you just need education then. Your natural posture to God is not indifference because then you just need motivation. It's saying that your natural posture towards God is hostility. That's why you need reconciliation. Isn't that incredible? It's clear, it's plain, it's laid out before us. There's, there's, no, there's no mincing of words there. It's very clear. The problem is, is most people believe they need help from God. They don't believe they need peace with God. Man, I put myself in that category. How many times have I thought, I, need, I just need God's help? And God is saying, you want help with this, this, this. You need peace with me first, friend. You're at war with me. You're caustic towards me. I, I, I like to take things outside of the faith arena because sometimes it gets a little too close to home and people don't like that. So let, let me take it into a, a relationship. 
Uh, think of an estranged couple. I like the word estranged because it means they were once in love. Like, mm, you know, I love you. <laughs> and now they're like strangers to each other. How does that happen? Well, they loved each other. And there were things they loved about each other that made them so unique. But all of a sudden, something of anger got in there or a a brokenness got in there or some sort of hostility got in there. And then all of a sudden, they see the person they love through a lens of anger. And all of a sudden, the things that attracted to them actually repulsed them. So she used to love him because he he was so steady. He was unflappable. And now she sees it as emotional coldness through the lens of her anger because we need something to justify our alienation so we will see each other differently he used to love the fact that she was so organized she was so good at being an accountant and stuff she was so very detailed and now he sees it as a lack of trust and a controlling spirit what is she doing what is he doing they're justifying their alienation from each other by taking the strengths of the person and reading it through a lens of anger and hatred, and all of a sudden they're justified not to reconcile. So the same thing happens with God. It looks different, but the same thing happens with God. The Bible says that our hearts were hostile to God. So we see something as beautiful as the sovereignty of God, that God can do and think and act as he wills, unencumbered by anyone. And we see that sovereignty as a lack of accountability. We see something like the grace of God and we see it as being too easy. You'll look at everything, any of God's perfections, and you filter it through a lens of hostility and we just start to complain. That's what happens. We look at images like this and we start saying, you know, what kind of God can let these things happen in this world? What kind of God can let these things happen in my life? That's what we think. And when we do so, we are acknowledging the fact and we're forgetting the fact that he's the type of God that came into this world. And that's what Christmas is all about. And he allowed the most terrible things to happen to him. That he entered into the brokenness that we had caused to right the ship, to fix the ship because it had gone astray and it was so dark and so not leading to hope or life anywhere. And he took took all of that on himself. But instead, all we see is our pain. We don't see his. We just see our pain. I know best. I know how the world should be. It's an arrogant statement that comes from a hostile heart to God. Now, when we live in, a, uh, in hostility with God, we filter all that good through a lens of anger. I work with people, though, and I understand this. And there would be people in this room who say, listen, Pastor Smith or Jonathan or whatever you are called. Uh, listen, I'm not, I believe in God. I'm not, I'm not angry with God. And the more you probe, because I often ask, well, who is God to you? Well, Jesus is. Well, describe Jesus. Often they describe a God that's mamby-pamby. A God that wouldn't offend anyone. He's more like Santa Claus, to be honest with you. <laughs> he's passing out candy canes, and he's going, ho, 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 and get on my knee when you're, when you're hurting. I'll hug you, and I got gifts for you when you need it. Because they describe a God that doesn't hold people accountable. They describe a God that is not righteous and a God that does not have a righteous anger and wrath. They describe anything but the real God. 
Now, often it comes out in our culture. Someone will say something like this. That's not the type of God I believe in, right? I, I hear it sometimes. We'll talk about a portion of scripture and we'll unpack it. And someone will come up to me after and say, that's not the type of God I believe in. As if your belief makes God something different than he is. So if I was to say, I don't even know your name. I'm sorry, man. But if I was to say, listen, I believe you to be this, this, and this. Does it make it true? It doesn't make it true. People do this with God all the time. They barely have read the Bible. And they struggle with who God is. Because they can't believe in a God that wouldn't do this. As if somehow they had a God. Now, here's why some people feel like they're never at war with God. Because they've made God in their own image. And God just loves them all the time. And God never slaps their wrists. And God always gives them what they want. You know what that is? That's not the real God. Because that's a very unloving God, actually. That's a destructive image of God. Instead, I, I, I thought about this all week. I, there's a famous atheist. Her name was Madeline O'Hara. And some, some of you may have known her. Uh, but in the 1970s, she was on a TV show with David Frost debating whether the existence of God. Now, I'm, I'm revealing my age. I knew the 70s. I was around then. And on the show, she was destroying David Frost. She was brilliant. Far smarter than David Frost. She was winning the argument on why God doesn't exist. And finally, in a desperate last gasp, David Frost turns to the audience and says, how many of you believe in God? And all the hands went up and he said, there you go. As if that was a, some sort of proof moment, right? It was like, it's supposed to be the dagger. And I thought when I saw that, she should have turned it around on him. She should have said, okay, how many in the audience believe in the God of the Bible? Like how many of them, how many of you believe in the God that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai said, anything that touches the, the mountain must be put to death? How many of you believe in the God that when the Ark of the Covenant was tipping over and Uzzah touched it to save it from falling, he was struck dead? How many of you believe in that God? How many of you believe in the God of the Bible that appears to Job and after everything that's happened to Job never explains why it all happened, but instead says, trust me. But I demand answers. Trust me. How many of you believe in the God of the Bible? I wonder how many hands would have been up then. They believed in a God made in their own image. A God filled with fairy, book, fairy tale book stories, <clears throat> but not the real God. Not the real God, because they don't want a God of extreme mercy. Because then they can't work out their own salvation. They can't earn it. They have to receive it. They have to humble themselves and say, I can't do it on my own. They don't want a God of extreme holiness, because he holds people accountable. (laughs) They don't want a God. They they want a manby-pamby, moderate God, a middle of the road. Doesn't offend anyone, God. Everybody's included, no matter what, God. That's what they want. And until you admit that you are at war with God, that there's this hostility between you, not the God you've made, but the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, that he came to live the life that you should have lived, but were unable to. That he came and died the death that I deserve to die. He took the penalty of my sin on himself. Until we nail that down. In fact, it's really well said in Isaiah 52. It says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions, for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. 
This is why Christmas is amazing. The punishment that brought me peace was on him. He got my punishment. I got his peace. What an incredible exchange. People beat themselves up all the time when Christ was already beaten up for you. And he offers you peace, peace with him, peace with God. When I receive him, when I receive his grace, I receive his record, not my record, without spot or blemish, utterly, totally at peace with God. You have to receive that in a moment, and you have to receive it here on earth. You can't receive it after. We receive this type of peace after. But peace with God has to be received on earth. And yet I look at myself, and this is the challenge for me. Because I think there are surely people here who have reconciled with God, but you're not living like you've been reconciled with God. There's no mark of the peace of, with God on your life. And as I was preparing this message, I, I thought over and over about my life. Like how remarkable is my life? I mean, I've got peace with God. I've already got, I've got the big win under the belt. How am I living now? What marks my life as being different and distinguishable because now I'm at peace with God? And I, and I, I think of it this way. When I go into Christmas, I think, you know, how is the wonder of what God has done still amazing me? I mean, think about this, friends. You get peace with God, blemish-free, accusation-free, free. What gift could you ever receive from here to eternity that could outdo that one? I was thinking of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, when we touched on it last week when we were talking about the gospel. And Peter's talking about the gospel, and he makes this almost offhanded statement. He says this, Even the angels, the gospel to which the angels long to look in, the, the angels smarter than us, richer than us, more powerful than us, and yet they're looking at the gospel and they can't get enough of it. They passionately study it, look into it. They're dri- driven by it. They rejoice in it. They reflect in the gospel. You'll never hear an angel say, oh, well, the gospel, I'm over that now, moving on to something. There's nothing deeper than it. There's nothing more amazing than it. Nothing more powerful than what God accomplished through his son Jesus. And friends, for those of us who've been reconciled to God, and we live a life that doesn't have that mark of peace on it, it's because we have gotten over it. That's hard. We have gotten over it. The reason you have trouble forgiving someone, it's because you've gotten over peace with God. The reason why you harbor anger towards someone, you know, you cloak it well. Maybe you even hide it well. It's little comments that come out because out of the mouth, the heart speaks. But that anger is cloaked because you've, not, you've gotten over peace with God. The reason why some of you are so worried all the time, and I'm not talking about anxiety disorders, I'm just talking about everyday worry and cares in life. It's because you've forgotten the God that put the world into motion and who accomplished all of this for you. You have peace with him. You have peace with him. The reason why some of you complain and murmur and gossip, this is hard because many Christians get caught in this. 
It's because you've gotten over the peace with God. Think of this. Back in the Old Testament in Exodus, right? The children of God are enslaved in Egypt, and God leads them out, right? Remember this? You've got to rent the movie or read the book or something. But it happened, really. It happened. And they're not out of Egypt uh, like a couple of days. And what do they start doing? Murmuring and complaining, it says. Why? Because already they're over their freedom. I mean, you just got freed from hundreds of years of slavery. And you're already over it. What have you done for me lately? Because they had lost the wonder of that moment. And I wonder how many Christians get caught up in that. You lose the wonder. You're free. You're free and you're, yeah, but the seat doesn't feel very good. Yeah, but I don't like his hairstyle. <laughs> that song they sang, it's not my type of song. And it's almost like you're, are you kidding? You got it all. You got the best that life has to offer. You got Christ. He set you free. He's reconciled you back to God. You're free. You know, the seat doesn't go back far enough. It's just like, what goes on? What goes on in our hearts and minds in these moments? Well, we get over it. So we come into a Christmas season, friends. And here's your challenge. Don't get over it. Don't get over it. How marvelously loved you are. How cherished you are. Don't get over the joy of Christmas. You know, some days I wish I had the little kids running around the house again. Because when they were little, it brought me, Christmas seemed that much more joyful. They're up at like 5 a.m. Can we, can we open the gift? <laughs> now that they're teenagers, I'm waking them up at 10 a.m. <laughs> Come on! <laughs> I mean, there's something beautiful about a child. And I hope you're childlike when it comes to the message of Christ. Christmas. I hope you are amazed this Christmas season. I hope that you cannot get over the wonder. You have peace with God. Me and God, we're good. He sees me without blemish and there's no accusing finger pointed towards me. He set me free. What else do you need? Could it get any better than that, friends? I know I, I know that you're carrying stress into Christmas. Some of you are carrying challenges into Christmas. I don't want to minimize what you're carrying right now, friends. I'm just trying to magnify what you already got. You know, I, I laughed once. Uh, you, you've probably experienced this if you have people in your house living or breathing and you make a meal and they don't like it. Because mistakenly, the, your kids think it's a restaurant, that they should be able to order what they wish, right? <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, if you've never eaten, it doesn't matter what's set in front of you. You love it. If you know and you recognize that you were at war with God, and now that conflict is done, how sweeter that peace is. So in this moment, I'd like to pray with you and then the worship team's going to come back and we're going to sing that Joy to the World song we sang at the kickoff. But I'd like a minute just to pray with you, friends. I wonder how many here would uh, say, and you know, again, I'm not going to embarrass anyone, but if you could just give them privacy to those sitting around you, if you wouldn't mind closing your eyes just for a moment. And 
because I really think it's good to identify what kind of decision you're making because it really does help solidify some of the decisions being made here today. But I wonder how many would say with raised hand that I am in open hostility with God. I didn't see it before, but now I do. I don't have peace with God right now, and I want it this morning. Go ahead and put your hand up if that's you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. I see you in the back. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. There's a number of you. And I'm going to say a prayer, and I, I want you to pray with me. These are not magical words, and I learned this about God a long time ago. God loves hearing your voice. Now, you don't have to speak it out loud. I, I want to really respect your privacy in this moment. So you might want to pray it on the inside, but I want to invite you to pray with me. Father, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. It's in this moment and at this time that I admit that I have been at war with you. I've lived a life my own way and I am in need of your grace. And I'm not coming to you on my terms. I'm coming on your terms. Uh, Today is a full surrender, not a partial one. I'm coming to you, God, and I'm saying, take it all. (laughs) And God, I'm going to invite you to give me all that you have. So God, forgive me of my sin and fill me with your Holy Spirit and lead me in this life. Father, I pray for those in this room who've experienced peace with God, but they've been living under things instead of over things. They've lost the wonder. Somehow they've gotten over the wonder of what God has done in their life. This pivotal moment that changed everything. That they were made brand new in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray for them. I pray, God, this Christmas season, their eyes would become so wide, so opened at the wonder of Jesus and the gift of peace with God, reconciled back to you. Lord, that truly there would be the word amazement happening with them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the challenge, friends. Every day this week, here's your challenge. Here's your take home. When you wake up, out of your mouth, just say this. I've got peace with God. Life doesn't get better than this. I've got peace with God. Life doesn't get better than this. And there's a beautiful scripture that Jesus said. He said this, seek first my kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Listen. When you put the gospel at the center of Christmas and in your life, God will take care of all the other things that are troubling you. God will be at work in all those other areas. But start your day just saying, God, I got peace with you. It doesn't get any better than this. Then you can present your request to God with thanksgiving in your heart because you've already orientated your heart on the goodness of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, bless you, friends. We love you. Merry Christmas. We're going to have a great series. But let's stand and sing this song in closing.